This is Pulse 95. 95. Keeping it local. Keeping it local. Good morning and welcome to a special edition of Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. I was always considered sort of on the margin, you know, I was not part of the so-called establishment. You know, I don't think it matters really. I, I think I was always in on the edge and I don't mind being on the edge, but of course I don't want to be seen as someone who cannot do a certain thing. I, you know, once someone told me, you know, they don't give you work here because you are scary, and I, and had an answer which I would never dare say on radio, uh, but um, but I think that um, maybe so. I, it's not for me to say, because you know they're not going to come up to me and say, "Are we scared of you?" But you know that's how it is. Incomparable, revolutionary, and uncompromising. It is these qualities that allowed Dame Zaha Hadid to change the face of architecture globally, making her the first woman to win many of the top prizes in architecture, including the Sterling, the Pritzker, and in 2015, she became the first and only woman to be awarded the Royal Gold Medal from the Royal Institute of British Architects. Dubbed the Queen of the Curve, she was responsible for some of the most spectacular and groundbreaking buildings the world has ever seen, including the London Olympic Aquatic Centre, the Haider Aliyev Cultural Centre in Baku, and Guangzhou Opera House, amongst many others. Zaha Hadid also made her mark right here in Sharjah with the ethereal design of the new BIA headquarters that rises like a sculptural sand dune out of the desert and in her firm's exhilarating design for the central hub in Arada's Al-Jada development. Today, we get an insight into who the Iron Lady really was behind the scenes as I sit down with Tariq Hayat, Head of Region for the Middle East at Zaha Hadid Architects, and I asked him what made her so special and why Zaha Hadid Architects are working in Sharjah and the amazing designs that are coming to life here in the Emirate. I'm Sally Musa, and this is Life Beats here on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. All day, every day. This is Pulse 95. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa on Pulse 95. Now, Zaha Hadid is one of the most revolutionary architects of our time, producing work that at once moves you and forces you to question everything that you know. Born in Baghdad in 1950, she studied mathematics at the American University of Beirut before moving in the early 70s to London to study at the Architectural Association School of Architecture. There, she studied with Rem Kulhas, Elia Zangelis and Bernard Shumi and her professor Rem Kulas described her at graduation as 
a planet in her own orbit, while Elia Zangelis described her as the most outstanding pupil he had ever taught. We called her the inventor of the 89 degrees, he says. Nothing was ever at 90 degrees. She had spectacular vision. All the buildings were exploding into tiny little pieces. And he recalled that she was less interested in details, such as staircases. The way she drew a staircase, you would smash your head against the ceiling and the space was reducing and reducing and you would end up in the upper corner of the ceiling. She couldn't care about tiny details and her mind was on the broader picture. When it came to the joinery, she knew we could fix it later and she was right. And her fourth year student project was a painting of a hotel in the form of a bridge inspired by the works of the Russian artist Kazmir Malevich. I spoke with Tarek Khayat, head of region for the Middle East at Zaha Hadid Architects, who had worked with Zaha since 2005. And I began by asking him what inspired him to work with her. I was 17, there was a book fair, and I've seen that book with that lady's picture on the cover. And I, was, I, mean, I didn't know him before that. And I was like, first of all, I was taken by the look. It's very striking charismatic look so I opened the book I was interested in architecture my father's an architect so I had that background so I opened the book and then when I saw the unconventional designs and drawings and back back that time it was more about the beaten fire station and um, you know other other projects that she completed back then but mainly her drawings and paintings I was completely astonished and I think that like kind of unconventional way of design presentations and techniques and the way she kind of broke the molds of architecture. She kind of basically liberated the forms and it was very revolutionary. And I think that kind of that kind of rebel kind of impact she had in, in the designs. And as a young guy I was always kind of, you know, angry and against everything and I wanted to change <laughs> and, and I think her designs were perfectly well in place for such character, like my character basically. So I think that kind of so it was not only the architectural level but herself being charging and fighting everything and trying to prove herself, that part of her character was a very important element for me to be inspired by her as well. Because she really had to do that, didn't she? As a female architect, she talked about that a lot, yeah. that the kind of um, the difficulty in just being female and an architect. And that's why she always hated when people called her the female architect. So she's just an architect, full stop. And I think this is, not even with Zaha, I, I don't believe in gender-based professions. You can't say she's a doctor, I mean like a, doc a female doctor or a female lawyer, I mean just a lawyer, just an architect, just it's full stop, you know? And I think that, so whenever she got, she used to ask questions about her being a female, there's the same questions, you're Muslim, Arab, female, so there are lots of kind of introductions labels. and labels, and so she's just an architect. She was very proud to be a woman, of course, she, she was very proud to be an Arab, but that's kind of a common, you know, that's a given thing. Yeah. yeah, for her, it's, it's, it's who she is. Exactly. Yeah. It's completely normal. Absolutely. I want you to tell me about the first time you entered into a Zaha Hadid building and what that felt like. I think the, the perfect expression I had, feeling timeless, or actually not feeling the time itself. So I remember the first time I've stepped in Zaha's building. I mean, it took, I have to admit, it took me some time to actually visit a Zaha's building because when I was in the UK at that time, Zaha didn't have any buildings. Right. So the first building I went to was the Maxim Museum in Rome. And you know, when you step inside the place and you actually, for a few seconds, you lose 
the sense of time, gravity as well, because the spaces are kind of intersecting and overlapping. So you feel like, why well, I'm exactly, you have kind of this overwhelmed feeling of a beauty mixed with excellency, mixed with, uh, with kind of striking configuration and composition of spaces, interior spaces melting with interior and exterior kind of configurations. It's kind of breathtaking journey and you basically, you lose the sense of, I don't exactly need to know what's the next room, let me explore what's the next room. And that's the beauty of Zaha's design, that they're always kind of about, the, okay, wayfinding is very important in the building, but it's always about you go and explore, you navigate inside the buildings and let the building take you, let the building lead you. And that's the beauty of it. So you feel like you're kind of in a Zaha's wonderland, basically. That's a great way yeah. of putting it. I love yeah. that. That's amazing. She was known as Queen of the Curve. What is it that made her designs so unique? You alluded a little bit to it just now in terms of, you know, is she deconstructed? Um, it wasn't just curves that kind of were beautiful, but like you say, they just took you. The shape of the building just kind of carried you into unexpected places. I mean, when they call her the Queen of the Curves, I think she was beyond that. You know, she, because Zaha's first drawings and sketches back when she was at the AA, it was more about these kind of sharp lines and sharp angles, you know, influenced by Kizmir, the, 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 the Russian artist. So it was very kind of revolutionary. Zaha started to explore also different angles and different surfaces. And, you know, she, she always had that say, there's kind of 360 degrees, why we stick to one degree, why we always need to do white angles or kind of an angle. And, you know, Zaha's designs are so much also driven from, by the nature. And she believed, which I completely agree with her. And I think, I think that's why I was also influenced by her work because the nature is the most beautiful architectural composition you could see. Everything is very proportional, everything is very well balanced. And why we don't take the nature as the main, the main source of our ideas and thoughts, you know, like this huge canvas, it's a huge kind of uh, prototypes around us that we can take from and we can mimic and we can copy in, in somehow. And I think that's why she started to focus um, on the curves and, and on the fluidity of the lines, I would call them, not the curves, but the fluidity of the lines, the free forms that allows users to interact better with the buildings, connect better with the buildings. Our movement is never in angles, our movement is very fluid. When, we, when you move in a space, it's always fluid. And I think she wanted to emphasize this in the buildings. So that's where the curves and the, the fluid surfaces were very well enhancing that. Yeah, I mean, before that point, before the, the 70s, you very much had, you know, the very industrial revolution yeah. kind of, um, the, the angles and the very Absolutely, much yeah. driven by that. Architecture was very much like that. And that is uh, Tariq Hayat, uh, the head of region for the Middle East at Zaha Hadid Architects. And coming up next, he reveals the two faces of Zaha Hadid between what we saw in the media and what she was like in private. This is Life Beats with me, Sally Musa on Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Keeping it local, all day, every day. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. 95.
Welcome back to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa on Pulse95. I'm in conversation with Tariq Khayyad, Head of Region for the Middle East at Zaha Hadid Architects. And Tariq tells me about the two faces of Zaha Hadid. But first, we talk about why architecture still needs to change. This is a consistent person I have against architecture in general because every single industry has progress apart from architecture. If you look at all the other industries, medicine, agriculture, IT, technology, everything's stepped way much beyond, beyond architecture. And we are still designing the same buildings that we've designed back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Okay, we slightly improve the materials, the cladding systems, the details, sustainability, but the actual revolutionary kind of designs, people still have their very conservative and accepting. That's so interesting that you say that. Where do you think architecture should be? What should we be doing that we're not in architecture? Just reforming the cities. And, and there are lots of problems in the cities now in terms of urban context and the way, I mean, people are getting, I mean, cities are getting bigger, growing, populations getting bigger, and the architectural solutions for that is still very, very conservative, steady. Mm. I mean, that's why I think Zaha's buildings I don't believe like you, you go to building and you say, oh, there's a one landmark. You know, you go to Paris, there's a certain landmark. You go to Dubai, this. And I, I think our, as an office, our philosophy that every single building has, should be a landmark in, in its own context. You know, a landmark that serves the community, the surroundings, and still architecture because, I mean, every single profession is profit driven. Mm. But in the same time, the, the level of kind of experimental solutions that we provide in architecture is very much limited. Going back to who she was, I, I love the, the things that you've just outlined and I think they very much apply when you're talking about the Bia building, Al-Jada, yeah. those things definitely apply. We'll talk about them in, sure. in, in more depth in a moment, but kind of coming back to who she was as a person, what was she like? When I talk about Zaha as a person, it's very kind of touchy. I always say there are two faces of Zaha. One, one face people saw on TV and conferences and, and public events, the Iron Lady, and rightly she had to be. Unfortunately, it's a man world, architecture, and she was facing lots of challenges in her career because she was proposing very unconventional solutions for architecture, and as a lady, Arab, Muslim, etc., so she'd been faced with lots of objections and challenges, so she had to be that tough woman. You know, she, she's a very, very hard boss. She's a very, very hard woman to work with. She's she doesn't compromise, she doesn't say no for answers, she doesn't believe in just conventional solutions. So she was amazingly powerful, but in the same time as a person, on the personal level, she was extremely kind, she, very shy person. Very, really? Very that's, shy person. Yeah, that's amazing. But in the you. same time, she was extremely loving and extremely funny. Really? She cracks the best jokes ever. <laughs> so, and I think that that kind of balance was very important in the office. So in meetings with her, she would, she would be very, very firm. There is absolutely no jokes about the way to move the design. But a second after, once we finish, we'll talk about the projects and the design, she completely becomes this amazing, she, I mean, she's amazing, but she becomes this friend who talks about, I don't know, a concert or a movie or something that she Tell me a funny night. moment with her. Well, yeah, I remember once we were in Jordan, actually. I was with Zion in Jordan with a colleague He's not Jordanian, and we were having dinner in a restaurant, a very famous restaurant that almost the entire city was there. And you know, we wanted to leave the restaurant. I mean, this just gives you an idea about Zaha's sensitivity. You know, at, at that time, Zaha, she had problems with her knees. So she needs somebody to kind of, when she stands, she needs somebody to carry the bag, at least for her, until she starts moving. So she, she's a bit of 
help that time. And my colleague who was studying with me, who was more senior than me, he's been in the office way longer than me. And then, so I gave him the bag to carry, to carry the bag. And, she, and, and he kind of told her, why didn't you give it to Tarek? You know, like, because I'm, you know, junior. And she told him, he's Jordanian. Everybody knows him here. He, he won't be seen in a restaurant working with a woman's bag. <laughs> So she had kind of that sensitivity, you know, she has always had this kind of, you know... She understood. The cultures and she yes. understood, like, you know, like, if it was somewhere else, I'll give, maybe give it to Tariq, but, you know, he's in Jordan, this is between <laughs> his kind of own community, so, no, let's not embarrass him. <laughs> Everyone would see you, yeah. and then that you'd never hear the end of it after that, yeah. you'd be carrying Zahadi's yeah. bags. Um, but well, it, I did after that many times, but, <laughs> but not in Jordan. <laughs> but not in Jordan. But, you know, this is the thing about her as well, like you say, you know, uh, being Arab, being Iraqi, um, she was very proud of that, and, uh, you know, oftentimes the people would try to say she's British, but Iraqi born, and she said, no, I'm Arab. This is who I am. This is, you know, I'm Muslim. This is uh, her identity. How did that identity come through in her designs? She was very proud to be an Arab. She was very proud to be Iraqi. And she always, she never kind of, you know, people usually when they go, often when they go and live in the West for a very long time, they start to lose their identity. And, you know, she was always proud to stress on that fact. I mean, I think because of all these obstacles, I think they've strengthened her. So being the Arab woman, Muslim, going to the West back in the 70s to study architecture, a men profession mainly, dominated by men in London. It's an amazing place, but also has lots of stereotypes and lots of kind of rigidity when it comes to backgrounds. Because of that kind of background she had, she felt that she needed to, to set the stage differently. When Zaha went there to, to London, I don't think her mission was, I want to prove that Zaha is something unique. As she broke all the stereotypes and modes of architecture, she was also trying to break all the stereotypes and modes of Arabs and, and women's and Muslims and all these things. So I think that was a, a, an amazing driving element that pushed her to achieve what she, what she managed to do. Coming up next, Thanuk tells me how Zaha Hadid Architects continues Zaha's legacy in all their designs. And he tells me what makes for an iconic building. Don't miss it. That's next on Life Beats with me, Sally Musa on Pulse95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. It's Pulse 95. Welcome back to the special Life Beats edition looking at Dame Zaha Hadid and her architectural firm that continues her groundbreaking work. Talking to Tarek Khayyad, head of region for the Middle East at ZHA, he tells me how Zaha's legacy lives on and reveals what makes for an iconic building. What did we lose when she passed away? There are two things. I mean, we lost Zaha as a person. We lost her genuine and amazing spirit that we all, all miss back in the office and people who worked with Zaha, who knew her in, in person. But I think architecturally, we just lost the icon that was always shining and inspiring people. But I don't think it's completely sad because I think Zaha, because she was trying to establish a way of thinking more than establishing her own legacy. It was a philosophy. A philosophy. More ethos, than herself. Ethos, ethos yeah. and principles of architecture. She's gone now, but the way of Zaha's thinking is still there. You know, like she established a school, she established a way of thinking. She kind of reformed the way that young architectural students, they think about architecture. I've, I've been a jury member in lots of uh, graduation projects universities in different places in the world and you always find these few students that the tutors always oh you're, you're trying to be like Zaha and it's not about 
doing cares or something like that. It's about submitting something unconventional, something different. So I think Zaha, she managed to liberate our thoughts and our ideas to think differently. And there's nothing wrong in proposing something new. We all, people by nature, we all like to go back to the comfort zone. And I think Zaha they didn't like that comfort zone. You have to be brave to do what Zaha so did. You have to be brave. And I think and strong. And this is the point. She, I think her philosophy, she established that kind of pushing people to be brave and more courageous to explore new things. Just there's nothing wrong in trying something different. So is that how you've been able to carry that legacy? Yes, she's gone, but we see people more than ever wanting that name on their building, you know, Zaha Hadid Architects. It's a, You're it's carrying it forward. How are because, you doing because, it? Because, because the DNA is, she established the DNA in the office. So people who work with Zaha, we are around 400 architects and many of us have been with Zaha, working with Zaha for at least 10 years. And Zaha, she was always very good at investing in young people in the office. So she always believed in investing in individuals. And that was the smart way of making sure that the legacy carries on after her. To really put a point on investing in young talent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She was always looking for the young architects to speak with them in the office, to make them do designs and discuss with her. She was always looking for all these youngs because she believed she believed she was a student at but at one point. Yeah. And at that point she wanted somebody to push her and to, to support her. So she's definitely understands the background of these young students who especially joining Zaha's office, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking about even my time when I joined the office. Although I was very junior in the office, I was very young, but she was treating us like you're a very important part of the office. Yeah. And, and your thoughts and ideas are very important. It's not necessarily she will take them or she will accept what you're proposing, but at least you have a say. At other offices, you go back, you're, you're junior, you just sit in the corner, you, you do the task that you've been asked to do. But at Zaha's case, she was always interested to understand people's abilities and skills. Yeah. I want to ask you what makes for an iconic building or a timeless building. Iconic is, is very overused, isn't it? I, I, I do agree. I hate iconic because it's been like you know, overused and abused. <laughs> what makes buildings timeless? Ask this question when you ask yourself, what do I feel when I go to Alhambra in Granada, for example? Mm. Or when I go to... Uh, uh, I'm from Sydney. We have the Opera House. Yeah, it's, I mean, but sorry, I'm, I'm going back to... Way back in exactly. time. I like it, going back to the yeah. beginning. Because, because I remember the first time when I went to Granada and I've entered an Alhambra. And, I mean, the minute I've entered there, I didn't really pay much attention to the details. But what makes a building timeless is the feeling you have inside that building. So there's nothing tangible I can describe. Okay, you can talk about the... I'm referring to that building, to the palace. You can talk about the Mukarnas, the pattern the light, but the actual the essential part of it, what made it timeless was the feeling you have when you are there. So I think that what differentiate buildings from each other. If you go to inside a building and it doesn't trigger any emotional feelings inside you, from my point of view, this is just a building. And that's why I'm saying Zaha's building, the buildings, I mean, the buildings are visited, designed by us. There's always that feeling that you, there's something stops there. You know, there's certain feelings you have. I remember when I went to Baku in Azerbaijan, Hadar Aliyev Center, and I was telling, I was telling my friends when I, when I came back to London that I was walking around and there's a kind of smile on my face. You know, I'm, I'm just enjoying walking around. I'm just, I'm not with, oh my God, I mean, I need to leave, let's just, you know, finish. Sometimes you go to these museums and buildings and you cannot wait just to leave. So what You're makes, trying to find the exit. What makes a building timeless <laughs> is 
if the buildings triggers an emotional feelings that makes this building's images mm. and feelings printed in your brain. Wow. So it's not about material, it's not about the scale of the building, it's just its presence. It's physical presence, of course, very important. I mean, you cannot expect the building, which is like 10 square meters to be timeless, you know, but it's the scale of the building and the position of the building and the experience inside that building. And that's why I'm always referring to the ancient buildings. I'm not talking about Sydney Opera House. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of years ago. What made them timeless? There's something unique that made these buildings still unique after all these years. It's not just because they've survived, but because there's something unique. And the attention, the detail is very important that makes buildings timeless. The use of colors and materials, the light and the shadows and all these things makes the building, you know, they become more part of your own experience. I think once the building becomes part of your own experience, that also makes it times. Coming up, our architecture students today up to the task of carrying forward the innovative spirit that Zaha Hadid started. Find out next on Life Beats with me, Sally Musa on Pulse95. It's Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, on Pulse95, and we are looking at the incomparable Zaha Hadid and speaking to Tarek Hayat, who heads up the Zaha Hadid Middle East offices right here in the UAE. Now, uh, I asked him whether architecture students today are up to the task of carrying forward the innovative spirit that Zaha Hadid started. And this is what he had to say. What inspired you to become an architect? Uh, I mean, lots of. I mean, there's there's a, a natural one that I said. My, my father is an architect, and I think unlike the Arab world, where you know each father is trying to push his son to be a doctor, needs his son a to be a doctor. A lawyer. Yeah. My father never actually asked me to be an architect, but for me, since my childhood, seeing that kind of world, you know going to the site sometimes with him, going to the office over the weekend and all these things. So seeing all these models and back in the days, you know, the, his, his entire office, they were drawing on the drawing tables and the T-square and making the models in the office. So I find it's a very fascinating world for me. And then I started more and more kind of in, enjoy drawings. Mm -hmm. I, I used to draw lots of people's faces. I don't know why I was fascinated by drawing people's faces and the proportions of people's faces. And um, I started more and more getting interested in playing with Lego, even when I was a kid. I, I, I loved to do houses that I didn't even follow the manual or kind of the samples in the box, but I used to do my own designs. So I think kind of became natural thing, evolution of me becoming an architect and definitely started back in the days when I was like around 15 and 16, reading more about architecture, trying to understand, you know, what's the trend now in architecture? and who are the kind of the pioneers and that's when I saw Zaha's work and so it kind of all developed uh, organically let's say. I mean the, the Arab world um, is very much it, it used to used to be very very famous for some amazing uh, pieces of architecture that you've talked about uh, as well 
Um, but do you think now, uh, in the contemporary sense, is there enough emphasis on being innovative once again and being a leading force outside, out, out of the Arab world? You know, having those Arab architects who are leading the way in architecture. You mean if you have a chance? I mean, unfortunately, I don't see a great chance personally. Yeah. And I think this is due to we have less appetite for research, even on the individual levels in the Arab world, unfortunately. And I've seen this when I visit universities in different countries in the Arab world, and I meet the students, the young students, and I don't see the same hunger. Right. This is what I I'm used to see, at least about. when I was a student. You know, I'm not talking about like 100 years ago. Yeah. So, and I think definitely even when Zaha's generation, there was even more appetite even more. and more. So students, everything they want, we were living in this, in this social media, everything's fast, everything quick, everything's prompt, everything. Everything's under, available. Everything's available. So there's no, there's no really any kind of will to do a research, to design, to work hard, to understand what I could improve. People want everything to be ready, made. So I remember I was visiting that university and I was, I was presenting something and then I was part of bigger group of, of tutors and then I was having just I mean I, I, I stepped back and I was just listening to my colleague explaining something and I was looking at the students and I was as well like 80% of them were checking their mobiles so there's no I mean it becomes just a profession and architecture the only difference between architecture and other professions is that you have to love it you have to actually be inside it mm -hmm. and I've always told these students whenever I give lecture if you just want to be an architect, waiting his salary by the end of the month, waiting to move to another company to get $200 extra, keep doing what you're doing. If you want really to stand out and to become something significant, you have to completely change the way of your life, completely. And I often tell it students who are still in the first year or second year, it's not too late. If you don't think this is what you want, change it. Go something else. because. Honestly, it's very annoying when you see a student who's 17, 18, and you could see on his face or her face that architecture is their least interest. So why are you spending time and effort in a profession that requires lots of emotional investment and lots of physical investment? I mean, there are lots of young talents in the Arab world now that I see their work here and there, but I don't see, and, and, and unfortunately, this quite often gets challenged by financial yeah. obstacles. Yeah. That I mean, the market is very cost-driven, very, you know, profit-driven, which is fair. You know, it's a business, but the, there's very little room for ex experimental and, and adventure. Coming up next, we find out more about the phenomenal projects that Zaha Hadid Architects are heading up right here in Sharjah, including the new BIA headquarters and the Al Jada Central Hub, the focal point of Arada's $6.5 billion mixed-use development. Stay tuned for more next on Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. 95. 95. Keeping it local. Keeping it local. All day, every day. Heart of Shasha. Life beats. Life beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Hello and welcome to the second hour of Life Beats with me, Sally Musa on Pulse 95. Your temper has been called volcanic. Do you think that's accurate or are you misunderstood? 
I'm funnier than the others, maybe. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, as I said, you know, like they, 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 it's not seen as kind of a strange if a guy would would are they lose their temper or quite tough on their people in the office or whatever. Uh, you know, and also I don't miss my words. You know, uh, I, I'm, I could be very charming and diplomatic, but I'm not really. There was a time in which your staff wore T-shirts that said, would they call me a diva if I was a guy? Um, what exactly have you faced as a woman in this still traditionally male game? It's really changed a lot. I mean, at the beginning, it was very difficult. It wasn't just one thing. It was the women thing. The, I mean, they would never call a guy a diva, you know, but if I'm a woman, you know, or difficult. I mean, the worst thing is that, you know, I'm difficult. Uh, but if you are a guy, you are opinionated, you have an opinion, you know, you're not difficult. Uh, there is that kind of, till this day, this prejudice. Incomparable, revolutionary and uncompromising. It's these qualities that allowed Dame Zaha Hadid to change the face of architecture all over the world. And she is, of course, uh, making her name. She made her name as the first woman to win many of the top prizes in architecture. And we have been speaking to Tariq Khayat. He's the head of the region for the Middle East at Zaha Hadid Architects. This hour, we're going to be delving into the phenomenal designs by Zaha Hadid Architects emerging in Sharjah as we speak, including the futuristic but nature-inspired design of the new Bia headquarters that rises like a sculptural dune out of the desert and the exhilarating design for the focal point in Arada's $6.5 billion Al-Jada development. Tariq Khayyat will be giving us insights into the design process and what it was like being judged by His Highness Sheikh Dr. Sultan bin, bin Muhammad Al-Qasimi, the ruler of Sharjah. I'm Sally Musa and this is Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Welcome back to Life Beats on Pulse 95. And now we're looking at the first of the Zaha Hadid Architects projects that are emerging here in Sharjah. Inspired by the form of the sand dunes from which it emerges, BS New Headquarters is a feat of architectural ingenuity in design, a model for sustainability in execution and an exemplar for optimum working conditions and productive visitor interactivity. It's all very, very cool. The new headquarters is very futuristic, uh, unique, and an embodiment of BS spirit and commitment towards environment-friendly practices. That's what it's all about. Fully powered by renewable energy, the building stands out in its optimum use of resources while becoming one with the magnificent desert. Let's talk about uh, a couple of the buildings that we're seeing sure. in Sharjah. Well, rather a development and a building. Um, let's talk about Bia, first of all. Zaha's design was selected as the new headquarters for Bia in Sharjah. And it's, a, it's such a beautiful building. It's still in construction at the moment. But it, it, it's like, you know, it looks like sand dunes ri rising out of the desert. And I guess that's where the inspiration came from. So tell us more about that. 
it's one of my favorite. I mean, I'm, I have to be biased because this is the building I worked in since 2013. And I remember the first time when we received the brief for that competition in 2013. And when I saw the location in Sharjah, because we, back then we were used to Dubai, you know, all these wild buildings happening in Dubai. And I was like, I think I remember the first question was, mm, okay, Sharjah. Because Sharjah, they have a very specific style of architecture. It's beautiful, but it's completely, it's completely different from what, what we do as Adza Hadid architects. But after meeting the client, Bia, and visiting Sharjah and visiting the site and speaking with the client, I understood what Sharjah is planning to achieve. And I have a huge respect. I mean, I, I, I love the UAE personally. As an office, Zaha was always very much interested in the UAE and the development of the UAE, which is an astonishing story of progression. But Sharjah has also a beautiful story that they take their time in doing things in the right way, which is something I, I admire. And I think, I remember when we started the competition, it was a small competition, so also it shows the client's intelligence in making sure that they, they don't just go invite the entire world to bid for something, trying to, to see who's the cheapest architect. They've done the research intensively. They've selected a very, very good offices and they've given them a very clear brief. And I remember when we presented to His Highness, Sheikh Sultan, and the discussion I had with him back then when, when I presented, we didn't win the competition yet, but I was very excited to understand that this city, small city, has a big future coming. Tell us about that conversation, about that meeting. What was your impression of him and what did you talk about? I remember because we were sitting uh, in, a, in a certain venue, uh, the presentation boards and the models. We were three competitors and each one was taking a room. The presentation took place in the, in the UK. We are meeting His Highness, you're trying to prepare yourself, you don't know what to say. I was with my colleagues, I was the only Arab in that, in that presentation. I was I had two of my colleagues as well. There was also their, um, His Excellency Mr. Salam al Chairman of BIA, and Mr. Khalil Hamel, the CEO of BIA. And they just walked in with His Highness. And I was like, you know, sometimes you meet people and you just feel relaxed when you see them. And I think, honestly, this is the first impression I had because he just genuinely walked in and started chit-chatting in Arabic. He saw me there and he started chit-chatting. Where are you from? What's your background? Not even talk about the project. So he completely kind of you know, gave me that comfort, you know, he just... Put you at ease. Absolutely, I think he felt that, and he just kind of, you know, like, he was a very, very genuine, loving person that he just started to chit-chat about myself and my background, and, and, and then we started to present the project for him, and I could see the, the spark in his eyes when he was talking about Charger and how he see this building within Charger's fabric. And, you know, the, the love, the way he was talking about Sharjah and the city and the development of that city, you could tell that there's somebody who's actually, there's a champion for that city. There's somebody who actually believes in it, somebody who actually, this is his life. And we didn't know the results back then, but I had the feeling that we won it because the way he was excited and the way he was, you know, like so much promoting our ideas and so much kind of defending the way we were presenting the project. And um, he even started to discuss potential different sites for our building because you know he knows he knows Sharjah like the back you know, of like his no hand. one yeah. else you know so he was telling uh, his excellency uh, and, and the CEO like maybe it should be on that side or that side so he was very very passionate about it and that gave me lots of confidence not only about the project but about investing in Sharjah itself you know that there's a ruler who understands the future you know there are lots of things being developed in Sharjah in terms of 
certain style of architecture, but he also he's a person, he's a pioneering person that also looks forward and looks what's next. And I, because of that kind of combination, I felt that our design is perfectly fit for his vision. Definitely also our design was perfectly fit for Bia's vision. It's very also very, very futuristic vision. I always, whenever I talk with Bia, people think I have, you know, like I'm a Bia stuff because I always say <laughs> amazing things about them. They're absolutely yeah. a wonderful client because they understood the importance of investing mm. in architectural piece that will serve the company's purpose. So we're not just providing a shell. We're not just providing a container for them. We are basically partnering them in their story to develop and move forward. BIA, as you know, they have a very, very kind of futuristic vision, very ambitious vision regarding the future of waste management and environmental solutions, not only to Sharjah, but to the UAE and GCC even, and, and bigger than that. So they have a very, very big plans, and they understood that these big plans, these futuristic plans need to be tailored and need to be kind of integrated with a futuristic design that delivered the message. And they, they invested well in establishing a very strong relationship with a unique architectural office. And I think that was a perfect marriage. Coming up next, Tariq shares what makes a truly sustainable building that is stunningly beautiful at the same time. Plus, we talk the Al Jada Central Hub design and what makes it stand out. It's Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, on Pulse95. You're listening to Pulse95. Pulse95. This is Pulse95. Keeping it local, all day, every day. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa, only on Pulse95. Yes, it's Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, on Pulse95, and I'm talking to Tariq Hayat at Zaha Hadid Architects about their projects coming out of Sharjah at the new BIA headquarters and what makes a building truly sustainable. It is amazing. Every time I look at the, the design, it blows me away uh, when I look at it. Um, but I want you to talk more on a practical level of when you were designing it and thinking about, like you were talking about the vision of Bia, how do you translate that into the building itself? Uh, how did you do that? We are not expert, we're not expert in, in waste management and, and you know, environmental solutions. So we also made our own research about what does it mean, what it requires, the, the, the sustainability requirements that we need to do such a building with Bia. So I think that kind of uh, very dynamic relationship with the client mm. and the client team allowed us to, from day one, to come with a very strong concept. So the brief was clear from the client side. The couple of workshops we had the with the client during the competition were very useful and insightful for us to make sure that we provide them with the right solutions. So I think it was a, it was a perfect combination that, yeah. that worked. You're looking at um, platinum certification, lead certification yeah. for, this, for this building. Right. What does that mean? What does that look like? what's going to happen in this building that we haven't seen before in terms of sustainability in architecture and building? I mean, there are lots of, I mean, it's, 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 a, long, it's a long list of items that, you know, to, to get certain cert, certificate, lead or gold or platinum, whatever, or silver. But I think that the main element of that building that puts it on the platinum kind of level is the way that the design of the building and the construction of the building is being embedded within the urban context and environmental context of the of the 
project itself. So from day one, the design of the building, this kind of, you talked about the sand dunes thing, even from the initial concept that was driven by the nature, that was the starting point of having sustainable design that actually respects the surroundings. So the ABC of a design, looking into the context, the surroundings, and respecting that was achieved from day one. Because you often see designs that try to change the surroundings, try some, to fight. Some, sometimes, sometimes it could be the right solution. Sometimes right. you need, in a certain urban context, you need the building that provokes people, mm -hmm. that kind of proposes a new statement. Mm -hmm. For Bia, once you go to the site and you see all these sand dunes and undulation of the sand dunes, you, you cannot help but complement that. You don't want to fight it. You want to go with it. You want to. So. So our research was based on that, and I think this was a, an important sustainable aspect of the project. At the same time, small things like the orientation of the buildings, uh, having the concept of uh, the vast majority of the building is kind of opaque, so it's kind of enclosed space to enhance a proper cooling system, you know, passive and active energy consumption inside the building as well. Definitely talk about the use of the material, recyclable material that we are also using and, and producing. Lots of using recycled materials within the building itself. Yeah, yeah. And lots of construction material that we're using in that building actually is coming from Sharjah itself. Like the, the main cladding of the building, the entire cladding, the GRC cladding of the building is coming from the company which is based in Sharjah. And this is a very important element of the of a of a platinum lead building that you don't spend energy uh, in, in exporting and importing and all this shipment and all these things. So it's basically all done in, in, in one pot. Right. Basically. In one place. Yeah. It's really extraordinary. Definitely there are lots of things about electrical cars, a certain kind of, you know, setting, certain cooling systems, shading system in the building that, you know, there's a long list that you need, you need to take. To and did you kind of sit down with the team from BIA and go, what's the most sustainable way we can create this part I mean, of the building or how did that kind of all come is, about? Our architecture is not a one-man show so we have our own team so we are the architects the lead but we have consultants and specialists engineers structural mechanical services lighting landscape sustainability consultants that we used to have intense workshops with the client team to go all these mm. options so we present things we understand the client's requirements and we sit with our team and specialists and we propose the solutions that are going to fulfill these, these needs. Yeah. After all of that, it doesn't surprise us that now we're looking at Al Jada. But in terms of Bia, where are we at in terms of construction and when can we see it completed? I don't know. When, I mean, if you drive by the, by the building now, so the building in terms of shell, uh, shell and core, what we call it, is, is almost completed. So the, the bulk of the structure of the building has been completed. Now we're in the process of the cladding installation on the roof and the glazing uh, and, and the interior work. So uh, we are working according to the plan. I, I, want, I don't want to give a fixed date now. Right, sure. Um, roughly? Roughly, but we're talking about hopefully in the first quarter of 2019. Yeah, that's, that's what I've read in once. Yeah. That's what I thought. But let's move on to uh, now to Al Jada. And that was very exciting because that was only announced a couple of months ago, very recently. Yeah. There was another competition for that. Of course, this is the new development um, from Arada, from uh, Sheikh uh, Sultan bin Ahmed. And again, Zaha Hadid Architects was chosen for the centerpiece yeah. uh, of this development. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was also a very exciting, exciting moment for us because we are 
we're dealing with a kind of a client who's dealing with a certain kind of you know you know waste management environment and solutions, and then we're going to, to deal with the developer uh, uh, on a large scale basically. Uh, we've been invited to that competition back in December last year, and I think also this is, shows the importance of having a client who believes in investing in architectural solutions and the client who's very serious of moving forward. So we've done lots of competitions worldwide, and especially with developers, because the financial aspects are very, very important, you end up not hearing from them, or you know, like it takes them very long time to make their decisions. And I think Al Jadda was amazingly and remarkable kind of in terms of the process and the, and the speed of the process. So we did the competition in December, we presented in January, and we've signed the contract in February. Mm. And which the announcement a, was made in March. Which is, uh, uh, which is a record. Yeah. Which is something, a credit we give to Arada and to the client, Sheikh Sultan, and, 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 and the, all the stakeholders of the project because they had a very clear vision from day one that they want. They've, they've designed that master plan, Al Jadda, which is a beautiful master plan that you know, hosts lots of residential buildings, retail, etc., hotels. And it's a very, very kind of unique project for, for Sharjah. And they understood the need of having a signature, a flavor to the, to, the, to the site, to the building. And that was the central hub. So basically the central hub is meant to serve the community, not only within Al Jadda. I mean, the, the prime users will be Al Jadda users and residents, but it's something that serves Sharjah itself. And the way we presented our scheme that you need to bring an attraction point that serves the communities on different scales, the local community, in Al Jadda, the, the regional community within Sharjah, and then I would say the community of the UAE, a place that actually people will be willing to drive and go and spend time in a leisure and entertainment space. Central Hub hosts retail, shopping centers, food and beverage, museum, cinema, sport facilities. So it's a place where actually the family can go and spend the day there. So regardless if you have a flat or you have a villa in Al Jadda, you go there, you park your car, and you spend an entire day there in a very astonishing, unique architectural composition that breaks kind of, you know, if you look at Al Jadda Master Plan itself, it's quite modular, which is, which is a perfect way to do housing projects. There are certain regulations you need to do. And then you completely, and this is talking about going to be about having a design that follows the context or doesn't. And our philosophy for Al Jadda we need something that, that completely provokes positively the entire neighborhood. That's something that we add a twist and a flavor to the... To the catalyst for what's going on there. Exactly. Yeah. Next up, we talk a brand new concept that the central hub of Al Jada, the centerpiece of Arada's new mixed-use development, is going to be pioneering here in the UAE. It is the outdoor urban living space. It's life beats. Here on Pulse 95 with me, Sadly Musa. Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Pulse 95. It's Pulse 95. Life beats. Life beats with Sadly Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, it's Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, on Pulse95, and I'm talking to Tariq Khayyat and Zaha Hadid Architects, all about the new central hub at Al Jada. You might have driven past uh, the big, huge posters on Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Road with the incredible aerial view of the central hub uh, at Al Jada. And now it is drawing on the history 
of the UAE to create a pioneering design for a new way of living right here in Sharjah. The design is quite something and I, I can't stop looking at it. And in fact, this is, you know, something with all Zaha Hadid architects buildings, but it's something that is just so beautiful to look at, not just, um, you know, if you're walking through, but with an aerial view, I believe the design um, is meant to be, it's reflecting what a drop of water looks like. It is. And, and the point of, we're emphasizing on the, on the aerial view because it's a master plan, so you need to see the full picture. But the beauty of Al Jadda Central Hub Design, that it's trying to promote a concept that is not yet fully utilized in the UAE, which is an outdoor urban public community activities that more or less trying to make use of the entire year. What happens quite often in Dubai and in Sharjah and the UAE in general, that you have a space that you utilize for six months, and in six months this place becomes dead. People, they go there, the parking lift, they go to the place they want to, and they cannot wait to go out because it's boiling outside. So that kind of water splash or water drop that start to, you know, like spread out and form these different buildings, the way these buildings are being formed, relatively close to each other, to provide maximum shading and shelter from the sun, the vast usage of, of uh, greenery and plantation within the central hub design, and creating this kind of, you know, human scale level shading devices and elements that connects the buildings together. It's basically kind of the spine that connects all these ellipses together, that allows people and public to relatively walk around and navigate around the central hub along the year. So even in the hottest months, even in the hottest month, I mean, like, okay, I'm not saying it's going to be as pleasant. It's a fact. It's, it's a scientific fact. It won't be as pleasant as Sharjah in February. Yeah? Mm -mm -mm. But with the very basic environmental solutions, you find that people used to, how, how did people lived here before the AC? If you go to old Dubai, the usage of thick walls, the usage of, you know, dense composition and configuration of buildings allows maximum shading and enhance the you know, cross ventilation of the building. And that gives you a pleasant feeling. Mm. So when you go now to these places and you walk between these narrow buildings, you don't feel as hot as when you just step one meter to the right or left. So the concept of Al Jada is trying to also utilizing these environmental aspects and the configuration of the buildings in a way that allows people to enjoy, you know, everything is looking onwards. I mean, there's this obsession in the UAE, in the Gulf in general, about curtain walls, you know, which is something from my point of view, it's nice, but sometimes need to be utilized in a different way. So the concept of Al Jada of trying to cre create these kind of enclosures that you create the view inside. So you create your own view inside, you enjoy an environmentally comfort place. In the same time, you still have, you know, your visual connectivity to the outside and to the inside. That's really exciting. When can we see construction start there? Master plan design is quite different than mm. other buildings because for a master plan, we are designing the guideline, basically the manual. So we are designing the, the entire composition of the buildings, the massing of the buildings. We give a guideline regarding the facades, finishes and all these things, but we don't have control on the actual individual design buildings and construction because then the client takes these buildings and they might be commissioning different architects to do these buildings under our mm. supervision. Okay. So we are the author of the master plan, the central hub, but the actual detailed design of every single individual building could be with us, could be with others. So the phasing of the central hub, there's a, there's a phasing that as a design for the central hub itself from our side is going according to the plan and 
uh, and the relationship is perfect. Uh, very, very similarly to um, to Bia, uh, this uh, has a lot of consideration for sustainability, for the environment, for um, conservation of you know whatever it is, water, um, CO2, making sure that all of that is brought right down. Can you kind of detail a, a couple of the, the considerations that you had when, um, I know that you talked about the direction of the buildings and, and using those very um, traditional ways of controlling the is environment. That mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think as I mentioned previously, I think the, the, the ABC, I mean like the, the first principle that we use in Al-Jadda is this kind of dense configuration buildings mm -hmm. on the site to make sure like we're trying to create this kind of mini piazzas feeling you right. see in the European cities mm -hmm. and this is easily achievable by just making sure that distance between buildings is quite relatively small because it's funny you say that now that I think of it I was in um, Florence last summer it's hot in Florence it's 40 degrees in the summer but you don't feel it so much you're in the piazza and because of the buildings, they're creating all so, that shade. So it's completely shaded. Right. If you're walking within a distance of three, four meters, let's say, as a passage, or even five meters, six meters, but you have a, you have a three, four stories buildings above you with no curtain wall. So it's basically a solid surface that prevent, you know, prevents reflecting the sunlight mm -hmm. as, as glazing does. That gives you already a shading, a complete shading. So you are not, so you're already dropping I don't know how many degrees. Like if you go from shade to unshade without anything, you just, you know, drop maybe eight, seven degrees, whatever. So this is one. And two, enhancing the wind circulation and the, and the ventilation between these buildings. So once you have narrow paths between buildings, naturally the, the wind flow goes from a wider, you know, space to a narrower space. And that, once you have that kind of fast, or the speed of the wind ventilation gives you that cool feeling. So it's a naturally cooling. Does the curvature, because it's very curved. It's absolute handset, absolutely. The, the, it, it enhances yeah. that kind of airflow and the exactly. cooling elements exactly. that you're talking yeah. about absolutely. there as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's an incredibly innovative design. So exciting to see it coming up here in Sharjah. And coming up next, Tariq tells me why Sharjah has a special place for Zaha Hadid Architects and how it can lead the UAE and the region with its innovative outlook. Stay with me. I'm Sally Musa, and it's Life Beats here on Pulse 95. Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. Yes, it's Life Beats here on Pulse 95, and I'm continuing the conversation with Tariq Hayat of Zaha Hadid Architects, and he tells me how Sharjah has a special place for Zaha Hadid Architects and how it can inspire further innovation across the region. Tariq also tells us whether technology can really do what architects do. I feel like Sharjah is, you've talked a little bit about it, but it, it, it feels like Sharjah has a special place for Zaha Hadid Architects, yeah. um, you know, in the UAE and even in the region. Why do you think Sharjah is so important when, you know, you're, you're 
creating these buildings and what kind of an influence can it have on the rest of the UAE and even the region? I think Sharjah has always been interested in culture and arts. So if you go to Al Kasbah and you go to lots of events, the Sharjah Bin Ali. So there's a there's a there's so much interest early on, or at least for me when I started to come to the region in in, in art and culture. Mm. And and I think that's why the focus was more driven by the art and architectural activities more than the commercial activities. Maybe because of the scale of Sharjah and the population of Sharjah, etc. And I think Sharjah. As I said previously, I think one of the advantages is that they take their time in a, in a constructive way. So I think they do their research. They want to grow in a, in a well-balanced way. So I think they're very selective and it's very good to be selective in architecture and in developing a city. Because if you go wild, you lose the control. Right. Um, and you lose the identity of the You lose the, the identity and, and you, you basically end up doing lots of mistakes. But I think Sharjah's plan is in, in a, Sharjah's plan definitely is, is talking to the future, it's addressing the future, but I think it's also doing it relatively balanced. And I think this is, we cannot see this apart from the UAE itself within the relationship with Dubai, Abu Dhabi and the other cities. And I think they're all complementing each other in mm -hmm. that way. And I think I always say it's kind of the unwritten constitution about how each city has its own input in the development of the UAE, which is always possible. Yeah. That is very positive, but um, I, I want to ask you because just very recently in the last uh, few weeks, we've just had the architecture triennial being announced for Sharjah for 2019, mm. which is very exciting. So that's, I mean, that's something else that is kind of, you know, the, the, the focus is really there, isn't it, yeah, in the Emirates? Absolutely. Um, yeah. are, are we going to see Zaha Hadid architects um, being part of that, or is it too early to, to kind of think or talk about that? We always keen to, to invest in such activities and events, yeah. so hopefully. That would be amazing. We'll see. What's next for Zaha Hadid Architects? Keep inspiring the architectural world and keep developing Zaha's legacy and, and the office ethos in, uh, in promoting different architecture and solutions for communities. We are not just providing shelters, mm -hmm. we are providing community solutions, hopefully, that enhance the cities and people's personal experience. What do you think are the biggest challenges right now that architecture needs to meet? Worldwide? In the region and worldwide. I mean, this, I think for the architects, it's always the same challenge. There's no much appreciation in general about the effort architects do to come up with the designs and the buildings we, we actually come from. Unfortunately, and I'm talking about the region, not worldwide, architecture is still seen as a profession that it's fancy. You end up hearing that you guys, you draw and you have the computers to do everything for you. Right. And they don't understand the actual investment that we take from our own personal life to come up with the solutions and the designs you've seen around. And that definitely has its application on the financial aspects of the clients, speed of the project and all these things. So there's always an educational process that architects need to do with the clients. I'm not talking about every client, but in general, about showing them what it takes to do a building. Because you hear a lot now, oh, you've got AI and you can just put all the information into a computer. It can design a space for you. Yeah, yeah computers are perfect, but they cannot, they cannot think. We feed them with information, definitely. But to feed them with the information, you need to be smart and you need to do your own research the old way. And it's about the feeling that you were talking about. A Absolutely. computer can't give you the feeling. Yep. Yep. Only a human Absolutely. can give you that feeling, can 
transmit that. Yeah. But yeah. The computer cannot close his eye and imagine himself in, I don't know, where in Rome and see that's the feeling I want to have in that. But the computer cannot do that. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. That was Tara Kayat, head of region for the Middle East at Zaha Hadid Architects. Uh, it really was a fascinating discussion. And uh, don't forget, if you missed any part of it, it will be up on our podcast page on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Just look for Life Beats and you can find all our past shows there as well to catch up on. And that's it today for me uh, on Life Beats. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can do it now by emailing lifebeats at smc.ae. We'd love to hear from you. And don't miss the show tomorrow because we're going to be talking young people and mental health on World Mental Health Day and a new play that highlights the pressures and anxieties that young people are going through. And if you are a parent, if you're a teacher or anyone who interacts with young people, this is going to be a show that you don't want to miss. Join me, Sally Musa, and a diverse panel of experts from 10 a.m. tomorrow on Life Beats right here on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. It's Pulse 95.